Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. And this week's episode is actually pretty unique. Uh, my sister Monique and I uh, were sitting around talking about the episode we had previously done with Patrick Lacroix, in which we talked about the reality on the ground in Lower Canada in the 1840s that you know kind of set the stage for the mass exodus to the United States. And during this conversation, we discussed how Patrick had mentioned the rebellion in 1837, and we both noted that we knew almost nothing about it, which seems semi-crazy. I mean, I have a degree in history. My sister taught history. And so it was especially bothersome for us based on the fact that I'm actually able to trace a number of the branches of our family tree back to the year 1837. Not all of them, but certainly a, a pretty good number. In every single branch that I have traced back to the year 1837, that ancestor was actually living in what is today the province of Quebec. So my sis suggested that we really, really needed an episode about the rebellions of that time. So I reached back out to Patrick, and Patrick did us a giant solid, agreed to come back with the episodes of Patrick Lacroix. He's a PhD historian, a blogger, querythepast.com, which is an absolutely awesome blog. You gotta check it out. And I want to start, Patrick, with kind of a multi-part question. And based on something that we are taught here in New England anyway, and you study, obviously being from New England, you study the American Revolution substantially. And one of the things we're always told is the invasion of Canada, 1775. Benedict Arnold, Richard Montgomery, they head up and try to take Canada, conquer Canada. And again, part of the narrative that's told to us in schools anyway, is that they expected along the way to get some help from the local French Canadians, figuring that the French Canadians would be excited to help overthrow the British. But that when they got there, they quickly discovered that the 1774 Quebec Act meant that the they were, French Canadians were actually pretty content in their life and didn't seem super hyped to help them out on this invasion. So I guess my question is, was that even the reality? The story of where the French Canadians, at least in 1774, were pretty content with how life was treating them? Yeah, that's a great question. And just as in the, in the U.S., New England especially, the American Revolution is the event. In the entire course of American history, one of the most defining events. Similarly, as we'll get to a little bit later on in our conversation, the rebellions of the 1830s is one of those moments for Quebecers, for Canadians. So why don't we have that moment in the 1770s as well, to get back to your question? Right. I think it's easy to over-exaggerate, or at least exaggerate, how close we are to a revolution in Quebec in the 1770s. But at the same time, these French Canadians, and again, overwhelmingly, the people in the province of Quebec are French-speaking, Catholic, quote-unquote, Canadien. So these individuals are, for the most part, satisfied, or at least their clerical authorities are satisfied with the Act of Quebec. At the same time, they engage, for the most part, in acts of strategic neutrality. So they align with the people who are leading them at the time, whether it's American invaders, I use the term American, really patriot or sure. revolutionary invaders, right. or the British. And it's partly because between one group of English-speaking Protestant and another, they don't see that much of a difference, honestly. Fair. And um, even though the ideas of freedom of liberty might be really interesting to them, they know that so many of these New England colonists have participated in the conquest of Quebec only sure. less than a generation earlier. 
they're not sure which side to to take on um, and which side to support, honestly. And so I think we have to be very careful, partly because of the limits on the sources we have. We only have some evidence, some reports from the Quebec City region that uh, are worth looking into. And beyond that, we have to kind of presume what the feeling in the countryside would have been. But we, we don't see a mass uprising. And it's partially sure that the Act of Quebec satisfied some of their grievances with culture, with language, with the laws of France, which are restored on a civil basis. Right. But that only quells them to a certain extent. And it's very hard to detect whether there's a mass movement. But you're right, there's no consistent province-wide support for the American invaders. And we'll have to wait a few generations for us to see a mass rebellion across at least the lowlands of the St. Lawrence River in the area around Montreal. Gotcha. Okay. So then we have that period leading up to, you know, the War of 1812. Well, we you guys got the War of 1812 also. We do, actually, we do. yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of sounds like a silly, well, beyond 1812. But anyway, so we have the War of 1812, in, which obviously was huge on both sides of the border. Um, but I guess my question then becomes, what kind of internal political system do we have in what is now what is then Lower Canada, that kind of led to because seemingly that's what it was. It kind of almost led to um, the discontent. Right. So in a sense, the mass of French Canadians who at least tacitly agreed to live under the British sure. regime uh, in the 1770s, their gamble pays off partly because of the arrival of loyalists and the presence of these English-speaking supporters of the British crown, many of whom were from the American colonies, they want to continue to live under at least somewhat democratic institutions. And as a result of their presence in New Brunswick and what would eventually become Upper Canada or Ontario, the British crown will create uh, chambers of assembly. And that occurs in the early 1790s with the Constitutional Act. So there's a creation of two distinct colonies, one that would eventually become, again, Ontario, one that would eventually become Quebec. At this point in time, it's Upper and Lower Canada. Each of these receives its own somewhat democratic institution. You know, that's... A that sounds problematic already. Yeah. It is, exactly. So a system that's uh, fraught with potential conflict. And so in each of these colonies, you have an elected assembly, legislative assembly, but you also have an appointed legislative council. We might compare that from an American perspective to the House of Reps and the Senate. And the Senate in this case, which is the Legislative Council, would not be elected. That was entirely appointed by either the Lieutenant Governor in Upper Canada or the actual Governor in Quebec City. So already we have two chambers, two halls of assembly, yeah. and we see that they're appointed by different groups in society, the Governor versus the people. and instinctually we might think there, that there are clashing interests, and there are. So that begins in the 1790s, but it's not until the eve of the War of 1812 that you really have mass mobilization politics and people developing this democratic consciousness, since for the better part of two centuries at this point, French Canadians have been living under almost entirely undemocratic sure. regimes, whether French or English. So it takes time for them to develop that type of uh, political mobilization and political thought as well. So that occurs in that first decade and a half of the 19th century. Interesting. Okay, and just to be clear, their point, the Legislative Council is appointed by the governor, and the governor is literally set from London. Exactly. That, that's the deal. So they have almost the entire branch of their two 
two-body political system that has no allegiance at all to their position from the rank-and-file French Canadians who live there. Exactly. So there are wills, uh, or sorry, gestures of goodwill on the part of the governor appointing people who are from, or Canada for one thing, who are from the population. But these are elites, and overwhelmingly they are close to the sources of elite power. Uh, Some of them are really close to the Catholic Church. Some of them are large landowners. So these are people with means, with influence, who are not necessarily brought up from the lower classes of society and who owe, as you point out, no distinct allegiance to the people from the lower class of society. And increasingly, there will be an ethnic imbalance as well between those members. So predominantly, there will be a lot of English-speaking members, many of them Protestant, when in fact the large majority of the population in Lower Canada, as I mentioned, is French-speaking, Catholic, very different in cultural origin. And I'm assuming then that the Legislative Assembly, which is elected, really can't get anything done on their own without the assist of the other parts of the government. Exactly. So it's just as in our modern political systems in Canada and the U.S., you need the assent of both branches of this legislative wing in order for anything to get passed. So increasingly, there will be intransigence on both part on both parts and somewhat an unwillingness to compromise as well. So that, again, leads directly into the conflict that we'll see in the 1820s and 30s. Sure. And I'm, I'm curious, leading into that the conflict, the 1820s and 30s, normally when you study rebellions, revolutions, all kinds of stuff like that, frequently uh, major uh, impetus is some kind of economic downturn. And a lot of times the motivation for people to all of a sudden think, you know what, maybe this government that's running us isn't exactly the best idea, is that they see their economic reality change. And so I'm curious as to what kind of like the economic situation was like in that 1820s and early 1830s period. Sure. So this is a different period in in terms of political ideology and how people conceive of government. So it's not as in the present day where the government has a lot of potential tools to help alleviate uh, the well-being of people. So there's no presumption that the government necessarily owes uh, farmers in distress anything. I like it. But that being said, it does have control over tariffs, over trade policy, and uh, it has control to a certain extent over immigration as well. And in the 1830s, there's a sense that a lot of immigrants were coming, uh, especially Irish and poor English immigrants, are only adding to the agricultural crisis, the crisis in the trades, and that mass of people who seem to be unemployed, who seem to be coming in with disease as well, which at this point in time is hard to fight back against, uh, all of this is contributing to the plight of French Canadians and also contributes to the sense that this is a ploy somehow for them to be assimilated into English or um, English-speaking culture. But you're right to point to some of the struggles that you and I have discussed before, actually, on this podcast. Yeah. So that's a coming back into the plight of the 1830s in terms of an agricultural crisis. And that that discontent, economic discontent, no doubt fuels part of this political crisis um, and the dissatisfaction that people face um, or experience facing their elites. All right. And the one thing I just want to touch upon is something that uh, is going to be a perpetual topic for this podcast and the whole ideas of assimilation um because you mentioned that you know they they had that fear of being assimilated is that something that happens like immediately 1759 onward that we're always worried about that all of a sudden this french canadian separate french canadian identity is no longer going to be a thing or at least is under attack 
I think we have to separate what's realistic as opposed to what's feared. Right. And so in 1760, there's no doubt that it's impossible to deport 65,000 French Canadians as the British did with the Acadians. Right. So the next best thing to ensure their loyalty and their support is to repress uh, French culture, at least in political discourse, to no longer recognize the Catholic Church and to forbid the practice of French civil law. So that's English criminal and civil law, uh, or what we might call common law. Right. So that occurs as early as 1760. Um, and is kind of ratified in 1763. As you mentioned, the Act of Quebec kind of opens a window by which there might be coexistence, that French culture might be recognized. But that being said, those fears do go on for some time and are heightened perpetually by some crises that are almost calculated to do that. So in 1822, for instance, uh, there's this entire debate that arises in London that carries over into Canada about the union, the merger of these two provinces, predominantly English Upper Canada, predominantly French Lower Canada. And ultimately, this will not come to pass in 1822. It's going to take the rebellions, actually, for there to be a new movement to push towards the merger of these two colonies or these two provinces. But that too heightens the fear that Uh, French Canadians are destined to be assimilated, that this is an active measure implemented by the British government to bring them into the English imperial system and to make them good loyal subjects, which at this point in time means being English-speaking and Protestant. And again, that'll be a crisis, as we just talked about, in the 1830s with this, uh, what seems like a mass invasion of English speakers and the fear that the Irish and the English, the poor English that are coming over in droves uh, by the boatload, are really going to contribute to that, that soon enough French Canadians will be a small minority, that they'll be overtaken, and that over the course of a few generations, they will disappear as a distinct culture. Gotcha. And and I read a little bit about around the same period that we're talking about leading up to this, you start to see pretty distinct, almost political parties start popping up. Now, when do we see that and what parties are kind of on the scene at this point? Initially, you're right. Those distinctions of party are slow to come. And it's really in those first 15 years of the 19th century, roughly 1800 to the War of 1812, that we see cohesive parties that are predominantly ethnic in nature. So very often the mass majority of English speakers either from the eastern townships or from the island of Montreal will be quote-unquote bureaucrats. Gotcha. Um, There's no formal party system, but they'll be bureaucrats or sometimes called Tories by their opponents, which is a term that they come to accept themselves. And on the other side, you have the Parti Canadien, which really comes into being under Pierre Bédard, who's one of these great early political figures. He's the speaker of the Legislative Assembly, so he's elected by the mass of members, not only to you know, keep law and order within the House, but right. also to represent the interests of the majority of French Canadian members to the formal British authorities. So that comes into being, and they, they're supported also by a newspaper called Le Canadien, coincidentally. And that's going to be one of their main means of contesting the authority of Governor Craig in the early 19th century a man who's quite interested in actually being involved in elections. So he's actually going out and sometimes trying to gerrymander, sometimes... Is he um, actively campaigning? He is actively campaigning. Yeah, and he'll actually, partly due to the uh, attacks of Le Canadien, of that newspaper, he'll actually put some of their editors and journalists in jail. Interesting. 
So this is the beginning of a major political crisis that will only really end once he's removed from office by people in London who see his measures as being somewhat extreme. And it's very hard for any type of conciliation or any type of um, measure to be passed in that political system at the time, partly because he seems to be holding all the cards. Gotcha. So that will be an immense crisis in the that runs largely from 1806 to 1811, that is to say, his time in office. And it's only with the War of 1812 and a decade of fairly peaceful relations up to that crisis of 1822 about the Union that we'll have peace. But then again, we'll have additional crises coming up in the 1820s and 30s. These parties that I just alluded to yep. will become more and more cohesive over the course of that time as they come as they become more polarized as well. Now, Le Quedadien, the, the newspaper, what town is that out of? I'm curious. Where was it printed? How wide was the circulation? Was it literally province or lower Canada wide? Right. So this is one of the first major French-speaking or French-language newspapers in the province. It's out of Quebec City. Gotcha. And um, I don't have the figures in terms of its circulation, but it remains that literacy rates are still fairly low compared to other peoples, other populations around North America, especially English-speaking peoples. And so it is circulated, uh, but... I don't have a sense of how influential it might have might have been, sure. and it uh, might quite well have been a um, an elite newspaper in a gotcha. sense, uh, kind of ratcheting up the discourse for people who might have been more involved, more actively involved in politics. Okay, that's cool. Now I'm I'm curious. Then, so we get to this point. Obviously, we have um, this gentleman being sent back to London, but where do we have almost like a? Uh, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. Um, almost like a a recognition on the part of some of the French Canadians that we need to be more organized if we need to actually get something together if we want to see some change here. If we want to actually have real political change, we need to get ourselves together. I should make the, the, the small caveat that really this is, even though the ethnic factor can't be overlooked, yeah. and it's one of the major dividing, dividing lines within the province, uh, when we talk about French Canadians, they do have important allies that are of Irish descent oh, right. or English-speaking sure. descent. So there's Marcus Child in the Eastern Townships, who's one of these patriots, these radicals. We have Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, who... <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like a French guy. No, no. <laughs> exactly. So he'll eventually end up in the U.S. following the rebellions. Okay. There are the Nelson brothers, Robert and Wolfred who will both uh, be quite active during the rebellions and even after. So these are just a few names I throw out there to kind of complicate our view right. of what it means to, to be a patriot in this age. And there are a few even more exceptional French Canadians who might be part of the legislative council or who see some sort of personal benefit from associating themselves with the crown, with the British regime, who are also on the other side. But these are very few families and voices. Is it almost a, like a class distinction as opposed to like a... What's your first language distinction at this point? So there have been all sorts of really fascinating interpretations, and very few of those are satisfying in terms of, <laughs> in terms of defining where people line up politically sure. or ideologically in this time. So there's the ethnic factor. There's the class factor to a certain extent. But even that is somewhat unsatisfactory. You have a lot of poor people in Montreal who continue to support uh, the Tories simply because of traditional uh, tradition, family affiliation, when they came over to Montreal, for instance. Um, so class might explain part of it, and some people have certainly made that case. Uh, it's very hard to come up with a perfectly coherent you know, system. Gotcha. 
as it is in the U.S. at the time of the revolution in terms of sure. defining who's going to become a Tory, who's going to become a patriot in Absolutely. that context. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Got to try to advance the narrative, I guess, a little bit. One thing I do read about, because I knew almost nothing about it prior to you agreeing to talk to us, which is awesome, um, was this the deaths of three French Canadians during this electoral riot in 1832. So what led to this? Why did we have a riot? What were we rioting against? Can kind of how do these deaths occur and what is the impact of these three deaths going forward? So in terms of impact, I'd like for us to think a little bit about it in terms of the symbolism. That sure. That's where we are politically in 1832. Uh, you're referring to the election of Stanley Bagg and Daniel Tracy. So there's another English-speaking there <laughs> figure who's affiliated, and he's a doctor who's affiliated with uh, the Patriots. And so that will be an extremely contentious election in which the militia is brought in. And part of the challenge is simply that this is a time before the quote-unquote Australian ballot, that is to say the secret ballot. Okay. So people go up to to the polling place and vocally exp- express who they're voting <laughs> you for. You have to declare publicly who... Yeah, yeah exactly. So there's a lot of intimidation. I would imagine. And in order to, you know, gain the advantage, each side is kind of calculating how many people they need to bring to the polls sure. uh, from the the precinct, from the district. And only after a few days of not having, or a day or so, of not having anyone vote can then the votes actually be counted. So as long as there are people gotcha. showing up. So it could go on indefinitely, this voting process. Practically until they run out of actual voters. Gotcha. Electors. Registered yeah. voters. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So <laughs> tensions are rising through that process, through that election in 1832, <laughs> and eventually it That's becomes, wild. yeah, it becomes, you know, just this droplet of votes by the end uh, dropping down. And uh, throughout that period, as I mentioned, tensions will be rising. It'll end up with the militia trying to restore order through the conflict that emerges around the polling place. And three French Canadians are killed. And for a lot of, to allude again to the symbolism, to a lot of French Canadians elsewhere in the province and patriots, that's a sign of oppression, of people trying to limit their access to the vote, uh, but also using military means to suppress political and democratic discourse. Sure. Um, And in a sense, it's a sign of things to come. Only five years later, there will be a full-blown rebellion in the southern part of the province or the colony. So that's a sign of things to come. And by this point, I should mention to allude back to your prior question, these political parties have crystallized. Gotcha. And there will be very little fluidity in those two groups thereafter, partly because they're at completely distinct ends of the political spectrum in terms of the Democratic and Republican values that the patriots are espousing, some of which are completely inspired, if not pulled right out of the U.S., Yeah, right. as opposed to the conservation of a regime where the English predominantly hold a disproportionate amount of power, or at least by virtue of their association to the British crown and by maintaining this kind of authoritarian regime, they can maintain their influence politically, economically, and socially. Okay. And I did want to talk about there's another major almost precursor to armed rebellion that I, I, I did catch in basically every source that I read about this to try to get ready for the interview. And that was these 92 resolutions. So I'm curious, what are these 92 resolutions about? Who's drawn up these 92 resolutions? Why do we have all these resolutions? And why are the French Canadians or whoever the group that, you, like you noticed, encompassed more than just French Canadians? But uh, why did that group get so mad? <laughs> when these resolutions, that, when nothing actually came of them. 
Right. So these 92 resolutions come up only a few years after this election riot in Montreal. So they come up in 1834. They're voted by the predominantly Patriot Assembly in Quebec City. And they're meant to specifically address some of these longstanding political issues and not simply to make this bold statement of principles that's going to you know, be printed across the province, but to send those resolutions to London and be very clear about what they want and how they might be able to diffuse the political crisis at the time. So is it, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off here, but I want to make sure I'm understanding. So it's a situation where this crew is like, what is ever happening in Quebec City, whatever is we're trying to get accomplished there is not working. London, please help, or this is going to get worse. Exactly. And this is af after a few years of essentially political breakdown in Quebec City, partly because nothing is getting passed. And the responsibility for passing money bills is yeah. with the lower chamber, that is sure. to say with the Legislative Assembly, where the Patriots are the majority. And they're refusing to grant any supplies, that is to say to pass any type of appropriation for whether it's infrastructure, fighting yeah. the cholera epidemic, or maintaining uh, the bureaucracy, really, of paying civil servants in wow. the province. Yeah. So they're blocking all money supplies until they get what they want. So that's their way of achieving some leverage. They'll also bring in other measures inspired by the American Revolution, actually, including uh, boycotting foreign goods, sure. boycotting British goods to cripple, or they think they might cripple, British manufacturing, right. um, and at least hurt economic interests and economic elites in the province. So these resolutions in 1834 are kind of the culmination of all these different tactics meant to put pressure on the British government and to explicitly say, this is what we want. Here's how we can solve this situation. Now, of course, they don't budge at all. It's not a conciliatory <laughs> document by yeah. any means. So they point out the lack of equity in terms of appointments in the province, the fact that there's favoritism. And the term Canadian or French Canadian only pop up, if I remember correctly, seven to ten times in the entire document, okay. in those 92 resolutions. Right. So that's why some people say that the whole issue of ethnicity is kind of overblown. But in that document, they do point out that there's favoritism sure. that puts the vast majority of the population at a disadvantage. So that's one big thing. They're also assailing, as you might expect, the Legislative Council. So they want the Legislative Council to be elected, sure. to no longer be appointed at the discretion of the governor. There's also an institution that we haven't talked about called the Executive Council. Okay. So we might compare that to uh, the cabinet, if you will, in sure. this country or even in Canada. And that's an entirely separate body. So there's kind of this separation of powers that is fairly recognizable. And are they appointed too? They are appointed too. By the same governor guy? Yes, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. So easy enough. The two councils, executive and legislative, are appointed by the governor. And the executive council is somewhat different in terms of having executive power. So that's where you find the attorney general, for instance, gotcha. and other people who are, who are important in terms of implementing policies. Now, for a long time thereafter, after the rebellions, there will be a call to have the exec executive council be representative to actually come out of the legislative assembly okay. so that the people who have the majority in the legislative assembly are the ones who are basically appointing the government. Or at least, or have, a say. At least have a say in the, the entire process. Exactly. And that's going to be called responsible government. Gotcha. And you still have that to this day. Sure. But there is no such thing as responsible government. And the I think it would have been one way of conciliating the British authorities in retrospect. But that's not a direction that these patriots are going in with the 92 resolutions. So really, the bulk of their attacks focus on the Legislative Council, unfairness within the political system, 
and really the challenges of being able to represent the people. So there's this overall philosophical question that's not explicitly stated, but it's basically a question of who holds the reins of government in this province. Is this a democratic system? And we have to remember that democracy is a dirty word for a yeah, long time absolutely. within the entire British imperial world. Sure. So what they're focusing on is the somewhat more Republican system of the U.S., perhaps understanding that democracy is a dirty word, <laughs> but they're really arguing for more democratic principles right. within the government as a whole, even if that means having a somewhat less representative institutions than we see today. So that's really the heart of those 92 resolutions. And as a result of that, the British Crown will at least be responsive enough to send a commission of inquiry under a new governor who, with a few accomplices, with a few guys beside him, other commissioners, will investigate for the better part of a few years before sending the report to London. Yeah, okay. So they come on, they like they take into account these 92 suggestions uh, <laughs> yes. for, how, for how things could be made better. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I, I think I understand the official response from London is, thanks for the help, but pass. Like, we're not going to do any of this. That's right. And that response is encapsulated by the Russell resolutions. Okay. Russell being the prime minister at the time in Great Britain. And they're very explicit about shutting down all these propositions. Um, and it makes sense in retrospect, partly because they're hearing predominantly one voice in London, the voice of the governor who's sending yeah. missives back sure. to the higher ups, reporting yeah. to them. It wouldn't be in his interest to suggest anything else, right? Right. The irony in all this is that the governor who was just appointed to inquire into right. all this, his name is Lord Gosford, and he suffers attacks from both sides while he's in the province. He's actually a pretty moderate figure, okay. comes in with an open mind. His name has become kind of a dirty word in Quebec, <laughs> partly because on the heels of his departure, we have the rebellions. And he's seen as being an unfriendly figure whose report leads into the Russell resolutions. But the fact is, as I mentioned, he keeps an open mind. Sure. And he's attacked almost as uh, vitriolically by the constitutionalists or the Tories as by the patriots. Now, why is that? And it's partly because he's open-minded enough to say, yes, maybe we need to bring more French Canadians into the Legislative Council. Gotcha. He's not going so far, and he's not making any hard commitment, commitments, but he's not going so far as to say that it should be elected, but he's willing to compromise. At least that's the sense that's provided by his public demeanor in his time in office in Quebec City. Ultimately, though, uh, however somewhat compromising compared to his predecessors he's willing to be, sure. the Russell resolutions will put an end to that and really show that the British government is interested in imposing a hard line in 1837. Uh, if I remember correctly, the resolutions come down in March, word trickles quickly back to Quebec City, to the colony, and that's when you have a massive dissatisfaction because it feels like a dead end. Where do we go from here? Having done all these, implemented all these contesting measures sure. over the course of the last few years, is there an outlet now aside from violence? So it's kind of a situation then where they start to see a group of people who feel like, like they've exhausted all political channels they have available to them. They've tried their best through Quebec City. They've even tried their best in London. Literally, we got to pick up guns now. That's our only hope. So there's still a bit of a road to get to that point. Gotcha. Uh, but we're pretty close. Yeah. So in the summer of 1837, in response, while the assembly is not sitting, in fact, it stopped sitting for some time, usually it assembles and not willing to pass any measure, it instantly dissolves. 
or adjourns. Convenient yeah. enough, yes. Yeah, exactly. So in the summer of 1837, with the Legislative Assembly not sitting at all, some of these great leaders, including the one who's kind of the elephant in the room, we haven't talked about him, Louis-Joseph Papineau. Right. He's one of these leading orders. He succeeded Pierre Bédard as a speaker of the Legislative Assembly. So he has the, the trust and support of so many patriot leaders, of so many members of the Legislative Assembly, and he's going to go on a tour of the colony, as with many other important figures, including the Nelson brothers. And before thousands of people, oftentimes, they'll be speaking about their claims, the intransigence of the British government. They'll have these really, really impressive speeches and really impressive assemblies that quickly turn seditious, that are quickly signs that they have no faith in the governor, no faith in the British regime, are no longer willing to compromise by any means, and they're quite willing to say, you know, we've reached this point, we are almost at the point of violence. And they see the writing on on the wall as being exactly that that had been seen, as we saw in your preface, in the yeah. 1770s. So to them, this is really just a transmutation of the American Revolution. Gotcha. And this is where we're headed. So you have these mass demonstrations, mass assemblies, gathering, gathering thousands in the summer of 1837. And they actually get worse. And increasingly in the fall of 1837, we have street fights between les fils de la liberté, so the sons of liberty. Sure. <laughs> so that might ring a bell to a lot of, of American listeners. So again, clear American influence. And on the other hand, the Doric Club. Doric Club, are, nice. Right. And both of these are groups of predominantly young men, either French or British. Again, it's a little bit more complicated. I'm really brushing with a sure, broad sure. brush here. But there will be street fights, and that helps to increase tensions, not merely in the countryside, but in major cities like Montreal and Quebec City, too. Now, I'm curious, because one of the things, we, again, we hear about the American Revolution is you start to see the same kind of thing, where the, the seditious speech, giant assemblies, violence in the streets, often pointed to um, by historians looking back, at least a number of them, is the really terrible reaction of the British who are in charge of the that area um, as far as handling these mass demonstrations and the speech and the reactions they took. So what was the reaction then of the, the governor to these mass, you know, these mass incidents? And I'm, I'm curious, is it different? Did he learn anything from what <laughs> the colonies to the south had previously gone through? So that's a great question. And there's no systematic response until the fall of 1837. So they're not willing to clamp down. And that might be a lesson they learned. Right. I haven't looked Absolutely. too much into their papers. Sure. But there's no immediate overreaction, Got you. to say the least, until the fall of 1837. And then when we have the spark for the actual rebellions, and I know it kind of felt that way for the people at the time as well, the sense that finally we're doing something about our own fate. Got you. The spark for that is simply arrest warrants for the speakers at these large assemblies, sure. for those who've been making all these seditious and subversive statements. Those arrest uh, warrants and the fact that some of these leaders are now hard to find for some reason. Yeah, um, That'll be the spark for people assembling, trying to protect their leaders and challenging this, what they see as being an illegal and anti-democratic measure to arrest people simply for exercising their free speech. Okay, so where do these guys go? They all of a sudden have warrants for their arrest, and how does this lead to others picking up some guns? Right. So in the in November of 1837, there was a formation of camps 
especially along the Richelieu River. Gotcha. Um, and for people who might not be too familiar with the geography, it's a river that leads straight north from Lake Champlain. Right. So just east of Montreal. So that's where we find the biggest hotbed of... Now, why is that? Why is it? Why are they all hype on the Richelieu River? That's a great question, and that's a tough one as well. So a lot of people have pointed to the economic crisis Sure. to get back to that explanation. This is one area that's hardest hit by um, the agricultural crisis, uh, the fact that crops, crop surpluses have been going down. They're affected by the wheat midge and other parasites. So that might explain it. Uh, the Richelieu River is becoming increasingly commercialized at that point. Gotcha. Literacy rates are going up. Uh, we have the formation of somewhat more cohesive villages and towns with craftsmen, a class of craftsmen actually popping up. So there might be larger factors at stake here that might explain why people are slightly better informed gotcha. where there's a concentration of population. And it's also uh, a place where the demographic crisis is starting to be felt as well. This explosion of large families gotcha. and the fact there are only so many resources available sure. to them. So this is a big region simply in terms of population as well. So that's where we have the formation of major camps that are ultimately armed. And when the militia comes in in the fall of 1837, not only to implement these arrest warrants, try to find figures, but also to disarm the population that might be seditious, that we have this clash, this direct clash uh, on the battlefield. Now, were these leaders hanging out in these camps? Is that because you said they were, all right. of a sudden became hard to find? <laughs> Is that really where they were? In some cases, yes. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so one of these major figures is Wolfred Nelson, yeah. who had been making a lot of seditious speeches and who will become one of these military leaders. It's going to be a brief career because <laughs> of the clampdown, sure. but he's going to have a career as a military leader. Gotcha. All right. So what? when do we finally have shots fired in what resembles a full-on rebellion? Right. So there are three major battles that are kind of part of our public consciousness in sure. Quebec. Which, and I think major is kind of funny because I would want to get into the numbers a little bit. Because <laughs> what we're talking about, a major number in this rebellion, is very different than battle numbers that we see in other places. They're, it's a lot smaller. The numbers are nowhere near as big as what you would normally envision for a major battle. Right. And in each case here with these three battles, the Patriot side can be counted in the hundreds. Right. We're not talking about, you know... 10,000 men on one side and just about as much on the other. You'll have entire British regiments involved, though. So those numbers reach sometimes several thousands. Gotcha. So already we can see that there's a disproportion in terms sure. of military force on each side. And part of it also owes to the availability of firearms. So in one of these cases, you have a few hundred armed men and about 500 hangers around. That's probably not the right word, <laughs> okay. but men who aren't armed, right? Uh, who might have pitchforks or something else, or who are who are willing to pick up a gun right. if somebody falls in battle. But the proportion of people who are actually armed and ready to face battle is quite small. Right. Uh, but still, these this is an effusion of blood, of violence, and this is something we haven't seen in the history of French Canada or sure. Quebec up to this point in time. So major battles. I agree entirely with your caveat. <laughs> I agree entirely, but this is a novel situation. No, I understand. So what is the first one that we're going to talk about of, this, of these three major battles? So the first one is Saint-Denis on the Richelieu River, and it can at least be construed as a victory for the Patriots. So victory, again, needs a major caveat. Um, they're, may, they're able to hold off the British forces from gotcha. their camp. So that's really where the victory lies, and the British pull back 
before kind of reorganizing. So the British, they advanced trying to disperse this camp. Was that what the whole cause of this particular battle in this location was? Exactly. That's gotcha. right. And in Saint-Denis, you have Colonels Weatherall and Gore, okay. who are, as you might expect, on the British sound, side. Sound pretty British, yeah. Trying to clamp down. And this is one of those cases where you have only about 200 men who have fire har- firearms in their hands. Sure. So the even though there's a clear disproportion, the British will pull back, perhaps, you know, feeling that they don't know what's going on in the countryside around them. So that's always one of the toughest part with toughest parts with Lower Canada is you don't know who else is sitting in their, you know... Oh, of course. ...in their farm or right. in the next village. It's hard to get a good sense of the country, and there are very few people who are willing to either spy on their own or share information with the British. So they pull back. Um, now, and who's, had, the, who's the head of Team Patriot at this point? So that's actually a big question. Okay. Because uh, Pepino, after this first battle at Saint-Denis, is MIA. Takes off. He takes off, okay. yeah. and. It won't be long before he's on the other side of the lines, meaning not the British side, but the U.S. U.S. Gotcha. So he crosses over to apparent safety in the U.S. And so there will be some resentment in the ranks about... I would imagine. Right. And it's partly because he himself has mixed feelings about an actual rebellion. Really? Um, okay. It seems that way. There's been also some dissent within the Patriot ranks about what their objectives are. Sure. And uh, part of it is, you know, once he sees that the British bring overwhelming force, there is very little winning for the Patriot side. So, Papineau, you know, there's a sense of resentment following his partner, the fact that there might have been no opportunity if, as the leading figure of this movement, right. he had been able to appeal to the people and keep going around the colony and trying to draw up support, sure. uh, turning himself into some sort of General Washington, if you will. Right. But that's not what happens. So, he leaves... And other people will be there to take up arms, to mm-hmm. take up the leadership, including Wolfred Nelson, uh, Robert Nelson the following year as well. But it takes time for that leadership to come up. And none of these are military strategists or sure. strategists yeah. the way that the British are. And they don't have the manpower, the supplies. So it seems as though, at least in retrospect, from the moment that this uprising occurs or begins, that there's very little hope for the patriots. That being said, that being said... Arguably, you know, the American patriots in the 1770s were facing really hard odds in the same respect. And just as the American patriots in the 1770s ultimately win the support of France, there's a sense here that the patriots in Quebec won't necessarily win the support of France, but maybe the U.S., that big looming elephant next door that also espouses Republican values. And a lot of newspapers in the U.S. are actually carrying items about this resurgence of political activity in lower Canada. They're talking about this uprising. There's actually a pretty big effusion of public support for the patriots in Quebec in the U.S. And this is interesting because I didn't know about this at all. But um, one of the things that happened, at least in the American Revolution, is really early on, Team USA or Team Colonists, I guess, uh, send people to France to start lobbying on their behalf right from the jump. Like, we need this help. Let's get some people over there telling the King of France why they should help these colonists. Did they have the same kind of thing? Did the the Patriots send their representatives down to D.C. to start asking, begging, pleading for some assistance? Not before or during the rebellions of 1837. Gotcha. Uh, One of the big postscripts to this entire story is the fact that there's a new rebellion, or actually a few new rebellions the following year in 1838. So oftentimes in Quebec, we'll talk about the rebellions of 1837 
1838. Gotcha. And it's only after those rebellions, once a lot of those who flee, who are defeated, uh, end up in the United States, that we'll see some of them trying to advocate for the support of um, state support, but also people who might be well-placed in Washington to defend their cause. Ultimately, Martin Van Buren in Washington, he's not willing to take that risk, the risk of war sure. with Britain. And again, this is only a generation after the War of 1812. <laughs> we just went to war, right? How yeah. long ago? That was fought to a stalemate. Stalemate led to a lot of death and uh, honestly, perhaps unnecessary death on both yeah. sides yeah. since they go back to the status quo. <laughs> Nothing antebellum. much accomplished by either side, right? No, exactly. And I think that very wisely, perhaps, in terms of the larger course of international relations between these two powers, Martin Van Buren steps away and says, we have little to gain yeah. from supporting this ragtag band who've just been defeated in three battles, or two battles at least, yeah. who might not have the best prospects. And honestly, this is a domestic issue for Britain. It's not necessarily an international issue for us. Gotcha. All right. Now, going back to the narrative, St. Denis, the Patriots actually had a pretty good day. So they're a couple hundred held off this advance. How did it go from the excitement of that to this is going to die real, real soon? Right. So only two days later, the battle moves to Saint-Charles, where there's a somewhat more traditional battle between these two forces. Uh, so they meet again in battle. And ultimately, this is a clear defeat. So the British are playing a lot less cautiously. Sure. And so are the Patriots, actually, partly because they need an additional victory. They feel as though they have the winds in their sails, but that's not enough to simply right. hold off the British at a place called Saint-Denis. Yeah, right. They have to kind of build upon their successes. Sure. And that doesn't happen in uh, St. Charles on November 25th, 1837, so only a few days after Saint-Denis. Uh, so that's a clear loss. They're dispersed. The Patriots are dispersed, mm. that is to say. Yep. And as I mentioned, a lot of them will flee to the U.S., Gotcha. So what's battle number three then? So that occurs in Saint-Eustache, which is not along the Richelieu River. It's west of Montreal or west of Laval, Okay. Um, kind of where the St. Lawrence River meets the Ottawa River. So a little bit further west. Yeah, right. And so this will be the perhaps the least of the battles in terms of actual participation. The British, British advance upon the village. They're met by some resistance. And ultimately, they just cleared the village entirely of fighting men. So this is a very untraditional battle in terms sure. of simply dispersing men who had gathered, who were hoping to take up arms against the British, and that leads really nowhere for gotcha. them. Uh, the British have the upper hand, and over the course of the subsequent year, they, the British will get shipload after shipload after shipload of troops, unless there are almost 10,000 regular British soldiers in the province. So really, they're fighting tremendous odds. Right. And each of these battles is really a microcosm of that disparity between the forces of the Patriots and those of the British. Okay, so now we have, it's coming pretty quick realization. I mean, this the armed portion of this rebellion lasted a very short time. Everybody's starting to see that this armed rebellion is not going to be super successful. Where, where, where do we go now? What's the next step in this, in this story? Right, so the bulk of those who haven't been imprisoned, who haven't been captured, who aren't sadly lying dead on the battlefield right. or who haven't been injured, they try to regroup in northern New York and northern Vermont. Okay. So there's this really important transnational aspect to the rebellions, sure. uh, some of which I've explored in my research. And it's really fascinating to see how a lot of ordinary Americans from all walks of life support them. 
Interesting. And they help to conceal them, provide them with weapons. Sometimes weapons from American arsenals go missing from militia stores. And That's pretty the, wild. Yeah, and those end up in the hands of a lot of these exiled patriots. And they regroup over the course of late winter 1837, early winter 1838. And ultimately, they're planning an invasion. Gotcha. Uh, so they're kind of following in the footsteps of Montgomery and Arnold, in sure. a sense, gathering forces in the U.S. in hopes of invading Lower Canada and hopefully gathering a lot of public support in the process from their countrymen, from French Canadians and English-speaking patriots. And that happens at the end, very end of February in 1838. Okay. So only two and a half months, roughly, right. after St. Eustache. Sure. So... At that point, the British are quite aware of what's happening. And very quickly, the moment that they cross a border, uh, that these forces, insurgent right. forces cross a border, they're in, they encounter militia forces. So not regular British forces, but militia forces from Missisquoi County and the southern part of Lower Canada. And they're quickly repulsed. And this is really more so than ever before a ragtag band, partly because they get no formal support from the U.S. government. The militia forces in Lower Canada are ready to meet them. They're well armed. They have horses. And even though they have a few cannons, the mm-hmm. patriots do, sure. that's not enough to you know, make for a cohesive invasion force. Yeah. Right? The few pieces of big artillery aren't going to turn their, their, uh, the odds around. Right. So they're quickly disarmed. They quickly hightail it back to the U.S. Okay. after only a few days, actually. Interesting. Um, in which they, the real, their only real accomplishment is issuing this Declaration of Independence of Lower Canada. So they cross into the Canadian, you know, into the Canadian colonies, issue this Declaration of Independence, which you can still access to the, today on the web. And but quickly, they meet militia forces, predominantly English-speaking, who are quite loyal to the the British Crown. Sure. And so they hightail it back, where actually a lot of them are arrested by U.S. authorities. So back in the States now. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And that's partly because Martin Van Buren issues a neutrality act with the support of Congress and empowers local people to prevent a breach of neutrality, meaning gotcha. to prevent a potential war. Right. He's just with trying to avoid Britain. a giant conflict itself. Gotcha. Exactly. And this is a point at which local U.S. authority is kind of weak, especially in these northern borderlands. Right. So you have a few customs officials, you have sheriffs, and sometimes district attorneys or county attorneys. Those are really the only people on the ground who are there to enforce. Right. Um, you know, you don't have the Anything. FBI. Sure. Yes, exactly. So those are going to be the people who are empowered and sometimes have to do so despite public opinion, which, again, is somewhat favorable to the patriots. Okay. So now I guess what, what we're left with then is we get late 1837, try this rebellion, Big fail. Come back, regroup in the States, try another rebellion. Not any more successful than the first one. We're now facing some tough, even opposition within when we try to go back to the States. What happened? Is there anything, what comes of this now? This this movement, this attempt? Does everybody just go home? Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> so eventually there will be an amnesty that's declared gotcha. in the 1840s as a result of which many of them do come back. Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, one of the figures I mentioned earlier, he becomes a state archivist and a great antiquarian in New York State. Awesome. Fascinating figure. (laughs) Uh, Pepino travels for the better part of a decade. He goes to France. He goes to Britain. He spends a lot of time in the U.S., Mm -hmm. a lot of time writing and meeting other uh, 
important public officials. And eventually he comes back and takes a seat in the new assembly that's formed after the rebellions. Gotcha. So the, a lot of these people do come back and some still face major repercussions that are going to shift the entire course of their lives. Some are sent to Australia. That's a problem. <laughs> that would be a problem, sure. potentially. I don't know exactly. I have done enough research to understand. Penal colony of Australia. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I don't know exactly <laughs> what their circumstances are there. I know a few come back. They come so, back from Australia? Yeah. <laughs> That's um, awesome. But um, I think it's about 50 who are sent to, or 58 specifically, who are sent to Australia. Some were sent to Bermuda, which might not be that bad of a deal. Yeah, sounds better than Australia, I think. Yeah, or, you know. Time. Eight months in Lower Canada when snow's on the ground. <laughs> so not a bad deal necessarily. But so there is actually a campaign of repression in 1838 and especially 1839. One of the major changes in 1838 is the fact that there's a new governor who okay. comes in. And that's Lord Durham. Okay, I've heard of this guy. Yeah. For sure. Whose name has been, again, immensely reviled through the history of French Canadians since then. But Levon du Nord, they get a song about his letter that I'm all... I'm a pretty big fan of. Yeah. So this is one of the big looming figures in Canadian history. And there are a lot of different ways of interpreting what he's doing in Canada and what right. comes of his report. Yeah. Ultimately, he's pretty moderate. And he, too, is interested in conciliation with the United States. He visits the entire province. He's kind of investigating, just like Lord Gosford before him, trying yeah. to amass as much information as possible about what caused the rebellions sure. and how we can draw down tensions between various groups in society. He goes all the way to Niagara Falls on his tour of the colonies okay. and actually steps onto American soil, gotcha. which could be seen as a big deal. Sure, um, It's actually seen as a sign of conciliation at the time, that he's not willing okay. to turn away from American power. He's well greeted. He greets Americans on a footing of equality, really. Gotcha. So, and he's not willing to draw a hard line in terms of military rule or imposing some sort of military despotism upon the province in, in the wake of these rebellions. He's pretty moderate. But when a few very small insurgencies pop up in late 1838, his successor, John Colborne, or Colborne, is going to bring in his troops. He's actually a military commander. Got it. He's the substitute governor for the time, and he's going to really draw a hard line and repress and put some villages to, to the flames and really go around the province to make sure that all of these subversive movements are essentially run out of existence. So that occurs later. But Durham is especially significant, again, for the report he's going to issue once he leaves in the fall of 1838. And that comes, that's issued in the spring of 1839 when he's in London. He's able to finish it up, submit it to the British Parliament. You know, he's quite famous for this line about coming to Canada, seeing, expecting to see only an uprising of people animated by democratic principles. But what he found was two races sure. warring within the bosom of a single state. Those right. are the exact words he uses. And so this has contributed to this interpretation about French Canadians versus English Canadians or British settlers. And again, it's a lot more complicated than that. Sure. But that's how he views it. And that nourishes his argument that there needs to be assimilation. Gotcha. That the French Canadians will continue to be dissatisfied to challenge British power until they are made to be British themselves. So that occurs, uh, that debate over the report occurs over the course of a few years. Ultimately, there's a new constitution that's brought in in 1840 that addresses some of his concerns, including the issue about the issue of assimilation. 
So Lower Canada and Upper Canada are now joined together under a single constitution, a single parliament, a single governor. And the idea is that quickly the predominantly English Canadian uh, population of Upper Canada and the English population in Quebec City and Montreal will join forces and constitute a majority in the parliament and help to extinguish or at least override wow. the claims of French Canadians. Yeah. Going all the way back to what set this off to begin with, are any of these 92 resolutions, any of them, even in, in the retrospect, ever implemented? What what happened? Like, what was this all for? What is the lasting legacy of this whole rebellion? Yeah, great question. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of the big points of contention is the Legislative Council, right. appointed by the governor. In the 1850s, finally, both sides of the new province of Canada, Lauren lower and upper Canada, they'll be able to join forces together to push through a measure that implements an elective legislative council. Gotcha. So that the upper house of parliament is now elective. And they're elected for, if I remember correctly, eight years at a time. So not a bad deal. Yeah, right. And this is a step ahead from what the U.S. is doing at the time because the Senate is still appointed by state legislatures at this point in time. So that's a major breakthrough, potentially. Except that with the Constitution of 1867, which is the British North America Act, that goes away. Gone, yeah. So that for the last 150 years, we've been living with legislative council, meaning the Senate, that's been appointed still. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of a step forward, step Step back. back. Yeah, right. But one major breakthrough, more important than this elective legislative council that's short-lived, is the creation of responsible government that I alluded to earlier. Right. So that by the end of the 1840s, there's this principle in place that the party that has a majority of seats in the lower house, in the legislative assembly, will also be the party that forms the government. Mm -hmm. So that the party that passes the laws, ultimately, is also the party that implements the laws, which makes a lot of sense. (laughs) But that's very different from the American system where we have very distinct branches of Of government as well. No, okay, interesting. So I guess the last thing I, I have... I'm curious how those who took part in this rebellion um, are kind of remembered today in Quebec. Like, are these, some of the names you mentioned, are these people heroes? Is that how? You, obviously, I would think you take away Papineau, you, you take off on your troops, and maybe that would hurt your reputation going forward. But are those that led this this attempt, this attempted rebellion, however unsuccessful, are they looked on very favorably still now? Or is it kind of like uh, thought of as kind of crazies? who were on like the fringe, who tried this thing and wasn't working. Right, so that's a great question. And for the better part, and I wish I had the exact date, of the last maybe 15 years or so, we have in Quebec every May, Patriots Day. Got you. So they are publicly memorialized uh, as a group, these people who took up arms in defense, at least allegedly, of democratic and republican principles. Right, right. So that's pretty significant. And Papineau is still a major figure, if not the major figure of 19th century Quebec. In fact, his career stretches from uh, the late 18-teens to the 1850s and 60s, actually. So the better part of 40 years, because once he comes back from France and Britain in the 1840s, after this amnesty, he returns to Parliament. That's cool. Yeah, he never enjoys the same level of influence or popularity, but he's still seen as being the advocate of the rights and interests of French Canadians. And there's this really interesting nationalist spin on his uh, influence in Quebec history. And Jean-Olivier Chénier, who's another important patriot figure, uh, ultimately he's killed by British authorities. 
but he too has been celebrated. He's a subject of a movie as well that's been made uh, probably two and a half decades back. Okay. So all of these major figures are part of our kind of collective historical consciousness in Quebec, more so Papineau and others who bear French-Canadian names sure. than the Nelson brothers or O'Callaghan or Tracy or Child, partly because the Patriot movement has been consistently, consistently interpreted as a predominantly French-Canadian movement, when in fact, for a lot of people, people, it was really an argument and a movement for basic political principles of equality, democracy, etc., Awesome. Well, this is very cool. Patrick, again, thank you very much for joining us. This has been awesome. Again, something that I I don't think that many Franco-Americans know anything about, even though it's a major part of our history and the history of our families. So absolutely thank you for joining us. Is there anything while we got you on that you want to plug, that you want to make note that you're doing now? Sure. So anyone who's interested in the subject of migration or even cross-border relations between the U.S. and Canada and some of these big issues that we've been discussing today can check out my blog, QueryThePast.com, that you mentioned earlier. I've written a few articles on the subject in the Journal of Early American History, the International History Review. People are more than welcome to reach out to me to get a little bit more information about those pieces. So I'll be glad to have a conversation about, you know, anything <laughs> history-related. I love it. I love to, to now, engage in. They can reach out to you through that website? Absolutely. That's so there's the a con- there's a contact form on there, or they can find me on Twitter or Google my name. There's a way of getting to me any which way, basically. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, Patrick. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you so much. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair to think that everything they love we simply do not share. But the spirit never dies. Our culture will survive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.